Uh, for Libby, when uh, I got here in January, it's when I, first day was January 1st, uh, best first day ever because I was off. Um, we went to, uh, we had our daughter 29 days later, January 29th, um, and then a couple weeks after that, we, I stayed home from community group, my wife went, and she burst into the door and she's like, babe, I met this girl, she's so awesome, she's so sweet, and that girl happened to be Libby Cleave, uh, just sharing like her heart and um, just this sweet and gentle and kind spirit that she has, and yeah, just incredible. A week later, I got to meet her for the first time. Um, my wife stayed home, and I kind of came back home. I was like, you're totally right. You know, came back in gloating in the same way. We were just both in the living room, like, you know, like that type of thing. Um, yeah, and so, man, we're so blessed to have her. Uh, and we're blessed to have each individual that's been featured in these videos. It's truly an example of how Christ is at work in this church through the lives of people that you don't necessarily see from this stage, but are at work to bless the body and to bless the church, to bless those outside and to spread uh, the message of Jesus here, right here in these seats. They're, we're together, you know what I mean? So it's just been incredible. If we could, this is, this is the last week we're actually going through this series, as, as, as Nick has mentioned. Um, man, if we could give it up for Brandon Reich, he's the one that actually made these videos. Uh, man, he put in, I mean, hours of effort here, guys. Hours, hours. I mean, it is just such a gift back to us. I call him uh, Brandon Reich, filmmaker extraordinaire. Hashtag the Bob Zula. <laughs> I got you, baby. I'm sorry. Okay, I got you. Anyway, um, yeah, thank you for giving. It goes to broken iPads. I'm just playing. Just playing. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding, Nick. I'm just playing, baby. Um, yeah, if you have your, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump in today. Uh, we have some time. We don't have that much time, so we're going to jump in. If you need a Bible, could you raise your hands? Um, we're going to go ahead and uh, get started just giving out Bibles. If you do not have one at home, man, please go ahead and uh, keep that one. That's our gift to you, okay? In addition, if you have the Bible app, the, the Version Bible app, you can go to, can you throw that, uh, can you throw, Eric, can you throw that slide up? The, y'all back there? No, I'm just playing. Um, yeah, you can go to your Version Bible app, put, you know, open the menu, go to events, go to the well, or you can uh, just type in this link to your browser. You'll go to those same, uh, those same notes, okay? We're going to go ahead and jump in, though. Um, I, my name's Josh. I think you guys kind of gathered that from the course of the morning so far. Um, a great philosopher and poet once said, uh, if you're not making someone else's life better, then you're wasting your time. Your life will become better by making other lives better. The great philosopher and poet was none other than the fresh prince himself, Will Smith. Um, an actual philosopher, no disrespect, you know, fresh prince if you happen to hear this. Uh, another philosopher, another, an actual philosopher, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the purpose of life is not to be happy, it is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate. Uh, to have it make some difference that you have lived and have lived well. The great Christian theologian and church father, St. Augustine of Hippo, said, What does love look like? It has hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear the sights and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. I'm not sure if you can kind of tell what I'm getting at here, but if you can't, I'll just say it plainly. Um, man, we, we want our lives to matter. We want to be considered good people. We want to do these things because, I mean, well, for some of us, like, just because. Like, but, but, but man, this is, this is such an important concept to understand that 
It's a part of how we're created, all of humanity. When you look around this room, when you look uh, at your job, man, I would say 90% of the people you meet want to be good people, like really do. Like that's why people that aren't like Christians, right, people that don't follow Jesus, like we all have this concept of doing good to other people. It's why we feel guilty in situations where we fail or where we hurt someone. You don't have to be a Christian to feel bad about hurting someone. We all have that feeling. Now, why we have that feeling is where the concepts of faith and these different ideas actually come out. Because to some, simply wanting to be a good person is related to social constructs, right? Like, you know, we, we have social contracts with one another and, and we, we want to, to make other people feel because it makes us feel good, right? It's to our advantage. It's to our benefit that we make other people feel good. We have a need and a desire uh, for community and relationships. And so it, we use those in order to make ourselves feel good, to make ourselves feel better, to make our life feel more meaningful and whole and full. Uh, that's why we go off when we get married and have kids. And, and all that seems to make sense in a lot of ways, and, and if you frame it right. But alternatively, Christianity would see all that differently. Christianity would see the whole thing more in terms of the fact that, man, I love relationships, and I need and desire relationships because I was created that way. Because I was created in a way uh, that is in the image of the God that created me. And that God, he is communal. He wants to be around people. He himself is a community. The concept of the, the uh, Christian trinity is that God is one in essence, a nature. But yet that nature in essence exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that God that loves community, even creating, not because he needed a friend, but creating creation and humanity because he desired community and desired and wanted more and more community, that God created us. And a community-driven God created a community-driven people. But we all know that divorce rates are high, that friendships don't last. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to look at a 17-year-old 15-year-old and realize that, like, you know, parent-child relationships are not always the best. Uh, my dad's actually back there. Just ask him. I was a rough one. The Lord had to do a lot of work on me. Um, you know, but, man, we didn't take a, it didn't take a genius. It didn't take, you know, a lot of hard work to see that, that that's not the case. Um, and that's because that imprinted nature in us that desires community is also corrupted by another nature inside of us, a sinful one, a sinful one that corrupts the good imprint of God on our hearts to desire community. In that same fashion, in that same way, treating others well, treating others good, being kind and loving one another, man, that's a part of who we're created to be. But likewise, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of hard work to see that that is also corrupted by this sin that's at work inside of us, by this thing, this desire that, that sees even good things, but then, you know, kind of just distorts them a little bit. I always use the example of, you know, when, when a... When a young man walks an old lady across the street, it looks like, you know, the most gracious and generous thing until you see that there was an attractive woman on the other side, right? Like that type of concept, right? Where it's, it's good things, but this evil in our heart just begins to corrupt good things to make them to our advantage so that we can gain from them, so that we can gain from the good things that we do for others. Man, um, the gospel, though, what we're going to talk about today through the life of a man named Epaphroditus, is uh, the gospel, by the way, is just the message of Jesus, the message of what he's done, uh, the message of his 
life, his death, his resurrection, and what that means for humanity. That message, uh, it kind of contradicts most of the things that our hearts and that, that, that sinful, corrupted part of our hearts that kind of distorts the good things, it contradicts those. But this message is that there is a God who completely of his own will has started a reconstruction job in our hearts and in our lives. A reconstruction job uh, that's restoring and reconciling us as humanity, women, men, uh, across the board, right, all of us into this place where we are now restored back to what we're created for. And that purpose is truly to live out a life that shows others the love and affection of this creator. That's why that desire to be a good person exists in the first place. But it's not a construction, a reconstruction job that involves giving a list of requirements or rules. It's one that starts internally. It's one that starts inside. It starts in the heart. And that begins to tease its way out so that our actions become different because our heart is different. We're different in a diff at a different level, not just my actions, but now I actually want the old lady to make it across the street, right? Like that type of concept. Um, and this man, Epaphroditus, he's going to show us uh, a bit of his life and how Christ affects that, how he has impacted that. And I hope that kind of casts a mirror, uh, kind of leaves us answering a few questions about our own lives and our own hearts. And the two questions that I really hope we work through during the course of the next, you know, 25, 30 minutes is what's stopping you from living your life for others, risking uh, aspects of your own life for the sake of the gospel? And the second question is, are you setting your sights on Christ, both in your life and in others' lives, meaning him at work in your life and him at work in others' lives, to fuel, excuse me, your actions and desires today? Okay, we're going to go ahead and open up to Philippians 2. We're going to start in verse 25. If I start coughing, I have some pretty severe allergies. Uh, so, man, I, just first of all, I am so sorry to you because it's like one of those retching coughs. You know what I mean? So bear with me today, but we're going to be all right. If, uh, yeah, 25, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, <coughs> excuse me, where we find ourselves today in Philippians is Paul writing to the Philippian church. Uh, now, most of you guys know Paul. He's a great apostle and church planner uh, from the early church in the first century. But Paul, at this point of his life, is imprisoned in Rome. Now, there's a couple other places, you know, like historians, like maybe he was like over here. Most people agree that he was imprisoned in Rome. And when the Philippian church found out, they actually sent him aid. Now, this is the same Philippian church that if you were here last week, we talked about, Tori talked about, um, that, that was formed through these first people like Lydia, the slave girl, the, uh, the, the prison guard, right? This is that same church. Some of these people that we talked about last week were probably in the congregation as they heard that Paul was in prison in Rome, and they were even some of the ones that were like, man, I wish we could help. Like, how can we help? Now, the one that they actually sent 
was a man named Epaphroditus, though. And he's not mentioned anywhere else. He's not mentioned in Acts. And, and we don't know much about this man. But what we do know is that he was a companion of Paul's. He's one of the less famous companions of Paul. I, we don't hear about him that much, as I mentioned. Um, but just from this text, we can start to see a couple of things. And we can start to pull out a couple of things about his character. One, Paul trusts him. That's probably the most important thing. And how we know that Paul trusts him comes from how he describes him in this text. One, he instantaneously says he's a brother. Now, what that means is that Paul trusts that this man loves Jesus. Now, this isn't like some type of foreign concept. Like the way we use bro, it's probably a little looser than how this guy's using bro, right? It's a little bit different. He's not just saying, hey, yeah, man, he's a dude, right? It's not quite that. What he's saying is, hey, man, this man has an affection for Christ. I am bound to him as a brother because he believes in Jesus and follows Jesus, and I believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. And we're bound together the same way we're bound to the Philippian church and everyone else in the world that believes and follows this Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He continues and says, man, he's a fellow worker. He, he, he's someone that has actually come alongside Paul and understood that this is not a message of hope uh, that you kind of just sit back and do nothing with. Right? I, it'd be kind of like he understands that this man didn't win the lottery just to go back and sit in a rundown home. He was given the opportunity for new life and to actually use that new life in order to pursue uh, this kingdom, this Jesus, the message of Jesus and Jesus actually impacting people's lives. He went out to go spread that. So he's a co-worker with Christ. He's, I mean, a co-worker with Paul. He's a fellow worker. And this is where it gets interesting because this is where Paul begins to reveal a little bit about how he feels about Epaphroditus. He then calls him a fellow soldier. Now, I want you to hear that, and I want you to kind of think through that, because this is pretty revealing. Now, if you've ever kind of known or, or have been in contact with veterans that have seen combat, this should begin to paint for you a different picture. Uh, there's a bit of reverence between them to where one only knows, and it's even between each war, although I'm sure I've never been a veteran. I don't, I don't know many veterans, you know, that have seen combat and, and have come back. And, but but when, I, when I look at that, I understand that, man, there's a camaraderie between them, especially those that were involved in the same war, that saw the same sights. Um, to kind of to make this more relatable, uh, and I don't mean to make it comedic at all, this is just how my mind works, I really do think about Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump. Like, that's how, I, that's how I process this thought. There's a camaraderie between these two men because they saw the dangers of the battlefield. They saw, they, they, they love each other. And even in Lieutenant Dan and Forrest, I, I, I'm close with Forrest, we're on a first name basis. Um, and and the, the, with, with Forrest, even though there's a bit of, of disunity, there's a bit of frustration and anger between them, mainly on Lieutenant Dan's side, he cannot stand to hear someone call Forrest stupid. Because there's a bit of reverence and honor and respect that he has toward this other person. And that's kind of what's going on here. You see what I'm saying? Like, like, like Paul sees Epaphroditus. He knows, man, this man has gone through war with me. To kind of add texture to that idea, um, I wanted to kind of uh, reference a guy named Gordon Fee. Now, you guys may or may not know him, but he's an amazing Christian theologian and historian. And in regarding this specific verse, he says this, military imagery is not common in Paul. Very likely it was evoked by the surroundings, the fact that he was in jail, <laughs> or by the fact that the Roman Philippi originated as a military colony, where the Philippian church was located, was originally a military colony. With reference to Epaphroditus, the imagery is that of a wounded comrade in arms who is being sent back home for rest, 
Since Epaphroditus was almost certainly present at the dictation of the letter, these words are spoken as much for his sake as for that of the community. Uh, But they are surely for the community's sake as well, to emphasize that their messenger in Paul's behalf is considered by him to be a fellow soldier for the sake of the gospel. I'm not going to lie. When I was going through this and I read that, uh, I was so challenged. uh, Because in reality, the question I asked myself was, when is the last time I saw my life like this? And have I ever seen my life like this? The reason these two men had a comrade-in-arms relationship was because both of them understood that when they wake up in the morning, it is an instantaneous war against darkness. That is instantaneously a war, not just, that's, not just a war that's waged internally, not just that they have to struggle and fight and battle with the corrupted parts of their heart that are still trying to overtake what Christ is doing in their hearts and make them do things that are contrary to Christ's desire for their life. Not just that. But that they also said, man, and as I wage that battle and as I trust Christ to win that battle, I'm going to the world and I'm going to take this message of hope and redemption and reconciliation and this message that Jesus has died and loves us and has resurrected. I'm going to go take that to others so that that can reign in their lives as well. And they knew what it felt like to be hurt by that. They knew the disappointments of seeing a family member, seeing someone close to them walk away from the faith or just reject it completely. They knew the burdens. They also knew the joys of seeing people baptized and seeing people come to faith. So that when he, Paul, looked at Epaphroditus, he understood, me and you have a bond where we know what it is to wage war in this world on behalf of God. And I was just like, man, when's the last time I looked at a brother or sister and felt that level of camaraderie? First, that I got it. And then I invited others to get it with me and pursue my life to that end, to seeing others one, to wage war against darkness on behalf of God. And that's a challenge for us. But yet Paul understands, man, that there are people that do this. There are people that live like this, people whose brains work that way. And they're not just the people in the Bible. They're the people that seem to be on the fringes of the Bible. There's people that seem to just been attending a church or just taking a sandwich He understands that there are people like you and like me who sit in the crowd, right, and may not not preach a sermon ever. They may not go to another country yet. We live our lives in a way that wages war against darkness in our hearts and in the world to see Christ exalted, right? That's how he's saying people live. How can we live like that? Where can we live like that? When have we lived like that? Those are the questions that kind of started challenging me. Now, now he goes on to, to finish by just saying he's your messenger. He's brought the message that you guys want to care for me, and he's your minister to me. He, he's brought the Philippian aid to my, my, my side, and it's helped me, man. Praise God for that. Um, but there's a couple other things that I think are extremely important uh, when we consider Epaphroditus that we can pull from Paul. He's willing to risk his life. He's willing to risk life specifically in a way uh, that fills in for what was lacking in the Philippian church, not being able to be there and maybe not wanting to send more people, maybe not wanting to send aid. I don't know what it was, but whatever was lacking or their absence in Paul's ministry and to Paul's aid, Epaphroditus was willing to fill that. And so willing to risk his life for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Paul, for the sake of loving and honoring the Philippians. Now, this is all incredible. This is great. Um, and, and we could easily take this and say, man, Paul wants us all to be like Epaphroditus. 
which uh, at the end we'll kind of see that he's not saying no to that. But there's something bigger going on here. It's not just that he's saying, man, this man is of great character. Paul's not just looking at Epaphroditus and going, man, this guy's a good dude. He's a man of great character, of great reverence. You should honor him. Welcome back home. Right? Welcome back home. Honor him when he gets there. But there's something more happening. He's not just a man of great character, but he's, he's an example. He's an example. And when we consider the greater context of the book of Philippians, not just this one verse, not just this one section, but this entire book, we start to see that he's an example to something far greater than just being a good dude, just being a good guy, just, having, just being a man of character. But he's an example of something far greater. Now, I want you to take kind of note of what it is that the difference is between a good dude and an example for this context. Because Paul understood that, man, I, I desire the Philippian church to look a certain way, and this man looks like that. And what that means is that this is not just a man of good character, but this is a man who has subjected himself to Jesus. He's placed himself under Jesus. He worships Jesus. Daily, in and out, morning, noon, and night, his affection is for Jesus. He's looking to Jesus. He loves Jesus. And as he subjected himself to him, he's allowed that master builder to start that reconstruction job. And now his life looks like this Jesus. That's very different than going, he's a good guy. That's very different. How we get there is through, well, through Paul in Philippians. The whole point of Paul writing Philippians was for this purpose, I believe. In Philippians 1, 27 and 28, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is why Paul's writing Philippians in the first place. This is what he desires for our lives. This is what he desires for their lives. And it's a concept that starts with, man, he wants our lives to be worthy of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? What does it not mean? It doesn't mean he wants us to live in a way where we earn the gospel. Rather, he wants us to live in a way that shows the worth of the gospel, that shows Christ and his message of hope and life and redemption is worth choosing over anything else. So if you notice, he's saying, hey man, don't be frightened of your opponents. It's a clear sign of their destruction, but it's a clear sign of what? Your salvation. Why? Because you have found a hope, you have found a message that's worth more than anything any of them could ever do to you. So don't be scared of them. Don't be scared of what they'll think. Don't be frightened of what they'll say. Don't be scared that if you give your life and you give to them, you serve them and love them in order for them to see Christ, don't be scared that they won't give it back. And don't be frightened. And don't be scared to live in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side. And so really, there's two things at work here. Paul wants us to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, that exalts how important and awesome Jesus is, but he wants us to do that through living fearlessly, and he wants us to do that through living in unity with one another. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. And he understands that everyone outside of the church, as they look at us as a people who follow Jesus, they're going to go, man, those guys, those gals, man, they're not scared of anything because they have a Savior that's so much greater than they believe is so much greater than anything else. And look at how they live their lives. 
You remember those relationships that, that, are, that are supposed to be there, but our sinful nature kind of corrupts them? Man, look, that, that looks so much different within their culture, within their, their body. Man, that, that looks different. And it begins to exalt Jesus by living in unity and living fearlessly. But the reality is when we say live fearlessly, there are some of us in here that automatically our foot kind of went off the brake. Our foot kind of went off of the gas, I mean. Because um, when I say that, the instant, the, what we think of instantaneously is now I have to give up my friend fear. And for some of us, that has been our friend for a long time. It's settled in as our safety net. It protects us from pain. It's the thing that stops us from living our lives for someone else and mainly so that we don't look like a fool when we do it. It's the thing that makes you watch TV and go, I hope he doesn't say I love you first. I hope she doesn't say I love you first. Why? Because the fear says, what if they don't say it back? What if I look stupid? What if they say something? What if I do this and they say something about me? That fear, we think it's our friend. We think it's the thing that protects us, but in reality, it's the enemy that tries to rob us of the unity that Christ wants for us as his people, as his sons, as his daughters, as his children, as his family. Now, he calls us into a life that actually begins to help this, but it's kind of difficult. And I'm going to let you know beforehand, as we go to this verse, a lot of us are going to feel challenged right now, all right? Uh, I'm looking at all my husbands right now because I'm a husband. All my dads right now, because I'm a dad. Yo, this shit hits you hard, all right, fam? Uh, so Philippians 2, Paul's like, yo, what do we do to cast out the fear? He's like, yo, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Fam, that's hard. That's difficult. I'm letting you know that this is difficult, but Christ is saying, yo, I mean, Paul is saying, yo, if we live our lives in a fashion where we put others' needs first, then when we look at the people who are scared and they put themselves out there a little bit and see that the other person is more worried about them than they are themselves, that fear starts to get pushed out a little bit. That fear starts to get silenced a little bit. That fear starts to get shut up a little bit. And all of a sudden, we're able to live more in unity and in less fear because the people around us love us more than we love us, maybe. Man, but he's calling and saying, yo, yo, do this. Do this in order to enhance the unity and enhance the fearlessness among you so that you can go proclaim my name and live in a way where other people see how worthy, how worthy I am in your life and how much you love and appreciate me. Um, <coughs> Guys, I fail at this every day. I fail at this. I mean, all you got to do, uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to embarrass it, but my wife's in that corner holding that baby. If you want to go ask that lady how I do at this, um, she will be gracious on my behalf toward you and be like, he does good, you know, like that type of thing. But the reality is, is man, I struggle here. I struggle to make a space where my wife's needs are met always, every single time, more than my own. I struggle to be the gracious, kind-hearted man that, that the Lord wants me to be in order to silence the fear in her heart and draw us together in unity and cast out any fear that's there. Man, I struggle with that. You struggle with that. Anybody, I'm letting you know you struggle at it. There's either people that admit they struggled with it or there's liars. And which camp, whichever camp you're in, fam, that's up to you. But I know it's up. 
All right. But the thing is, there's grace here for that. There's grace for that. I want you to know that. He instructs us to do nothing of selfish ambition or conceit and to humble ourselves and count others more significant. Not looking to our own interests, but to, not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And when we fail at that, Christ does nothing out of selfish ambition. And he humbles himself and counts others more significant than himself. And he not only looks to his interests, but to our interests. So Christ is there to graciously forgive you when you fail at that. But Paul understands that that grace is not a grace that we take advantage of and go, well, I suck and I hurt people, but there's grace, and so do I really have to change? No, he desires for us to live this way. Christ desires for us to live this way. And Paul's communicating this is what God wants for us. But he understands that us just kind of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps isn't how it's going to happen. That's why in the very next verse, he reinforces this concept, not by what you've done, not by what I've done, but he reinforces this concept by what someone else has done, by what Christ has done. So in the very next verse, this is verse 4, and if you just continue on to 5, he says, have this mind among you. What mind? The mind to put others first. How and why? Which is yours. Why? Because of Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a what? Of a servant. I appreciate you, Johnny. All right. Uh, The form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when we examine what it means to actually live in this way, the ability to do it is not found in us just trying harder. But Paul instead says, no, 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 instead of looking at you in order to gain ground in how you treat others, in how you serve others, in how you love others, instead set your gaze upon how you have been served and how you have been loved and how you have been cared for. This concept where we set our eyes upon Christ in order to realize that we do not need to be scared that someone won't reciprocate the care and affection we give to them, not because we're sure they'll give it back, but because he's already given what we need to us. And now that I know he's given what I need to me, I'm free. I'm free to go live a life that serves others. And this is where, this is where the gospel comes in so strong here. Because this is where, where Paul wants us to see that, man, Christ, who was in the form of God, in he- glory, that he did not count equality with God, to be there in glory, reigning. He, he didn't count it something to be held on to, but instead he let it go in order to come down below and serve us. He, Jesus, the one who deserves the service of all humanity, he, Jesus, the one whose glory leaves people literally falling on their face in fear of dying, that Jesus, that Jesus came down to serve you and to serve me. And now, as we look back on how he serves then and how he continues to serve us spiritually now, we're free to go serve others. That's how this works. That's how it works. Man, we we, we set our gaze and we set our mind, we set our thoughts, 
we set our affections, we set everything we have on this Christ. Now, when we look back, oh, I didn't put, uh, I didn't put do not disturb on my phone. I'm not even going to lie, a soccer match came on, and it's a soccer match I really want to know about, and it threw me all the way off, y'all. So hold on one second. <laughs> hold on one second. Um, <coughs> yeah, sorry. So getting back into this and out of Premier League, out of Premier League, back into this. Okay. Um, when we look back into our text, when we look back in our text, Paul points back to Epaphroditus now with this as the backdrop, and he begins to paint a different picture, or at least we're going to see it in a different picture. This is what his intention was the whole time, though, right? I thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus my brother, my fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. What does that mean? It means my man is willing to sacrifice because he treasures Christ, because he treasures Jesus, he has found Jesus and the message of Jesus reconciling work in his life, the, 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 the action of crucified, of crucified Jesus dying for his sins and now giving him new life in Christ's own resurrection. That, that is actually so valuable that my man, would, he would serve. He would act like a soldier. Man like that, <laughs> he would act like a soldier. And so as we see that, man, that, that's an example of what, of him valuing Jesus. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. My man almost died, and he's worried about everybody else, okay? Come on, dude. My man's on his deathbed, and he's worried that Paul will be okay, and that the Philippian church will know that he's all right. Like, and not only him, but me also, lest I have... Sorry, go to the next uh, slide, Eric. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service, that he would have a mind as we mentioned just a little bit ago, that's so focused on Paul's needs and on fulfilling what the Philippian church promised they would do to Paul, that he was willing to risk his life in order to see it done. That's the example of the life Paul's hoping that we live, that Paul's hoping the Philippian church lives, that Paul desires for us to live. That's the example of what it means for us to live a life that shows the worthiness of Jesus and his message by choosing to give up everything else to pursue that. It doesn't happen just from us working to be a better person, but it happens when we set our eyes on this Christ. But it's not just Epaphroditus. Yeah, Epaphroditus took up his burden. He responded when he saw how gracious, how loving, how affectionate Christ Jesus is, yeah, he picked up his cross. He took up his burden. He actually started responding to it by living in a way that reflected God's goodness back out into the world. But it's not just him. The church wasn't built on the back of Epaphroditus, nor was it built on the back of Paul or of anyone else. Man, it's, it's, it's everyone. Just in the verse before this, Paul just, in the section before this, Paul lists off Timothy and says that Timothy uh, is a, a man who, can you get that up there? Appreciate that, fam. Uh, can you, uh, uh, that Timothy is, that he has no one like him, that Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippian church, that everyone else seeks their own interest, but Timothy is into the interest of Jesus Christ. Man, but you know, Timothy, Timothy has proven his worth. He has a son. He served with Paul in the gospel. Man, that's Timothy doing his response, living his life in response to the beauty and the affection and the, 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 the grace of Christ. But family, that's not just reserved for, for Epaphroditus or Timothy. That, that's for all of us. 
The message and part of this entire series has not been to look at certain individuals who we don't notice a lot in the Bible and how awesome they are. The point of the entire series, an, an unsung hero, is someone that simply didn't have their name in this book that often, yet when we see them, we know that their life made a difference in the world, in the kingdom of God, and seeing Jesus and his message spread because they saw the beauty and the treasure and the holiness and the grace and the love of Christ, and they responded by saying, I will give all for that. And when we sit in this room, it's not just about Timothy or Paphroditus' family. It's about you, and it's about me. Because they're not alone in how Christ has served them. They're not alone in how Christ has loved them. They're not alone in how Christ has forgiven them. That's yours. That's yours. Christ has come. He he came. He lived a life that you couldn't live, that I couldn't live. He died. He resurrected to give us life after dying for our sins. You, me, that's what's happened for you. And they responded not because they were trying to earn their way to being lovable, but they responded because before they were lovable, Christ had already loved them. He'd already cared for them. He'd already died for them. He'd already served them. He'd already left heaven in order to wash their feet and to cover them. That's what happens to you and to me. Family, Christ has already served you. He's already loved you. You don't need to fear whether he will reciprocate the aspect of your affection because you already have it. He's given it freely. And based in that work, we are now free to live a life that glorifies him by loving others in that same way. Whether it was about evangelism earlier in the series, about about carrying your weight, um, you know, Tychicus, whether it was about uh, Philippian jailer and, 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 uh, not Philippian, yeah, Philippian jailer and, and, and Lydia and the slave girl last week, no matter what it was, it was all for highlighting how we respond to Jesus. And Paul does want us to look to other people in order to see this. Man, because when, when, when he is pointing at Epaphroditus, he's saying, look, look at that man value Christ. Look at him value Jesus. Look at him value the work that's been done on his behalf and look at him go. Model that. Do that. Value Christ the way he values Christ. Set your gaze on Jesus the way he sets his gaze on Jesus. Continuously look at him the way he looks at him. And family, when we struggle with this, man, don't worry. Like, man, you're surrounded by people that are willing and wanting and desire to shower you with Christ's affection so that when you look up in this very church, you see the faithfulness of Christ displayed in the acts of your community group shepherds, in the acts of the welcome team serving you and loving you, in the acts of, of, and I want to exclude and take away the thought of like pastors and elders. I'm talking about like Eileen Drake and Libby Cleves and Paula Linda Holsey, the people that we featured on these videos who have treasured, who have looked at Christ and said, he is more valuable. And even if I never stand up on that platform, I will serve his body and I will serve him all of my days. Those people, you have those people to look to, to welcome into your own life so that you can begin to pursue that same life. That's what Paul wants here, to build a symphony and a beautiful mosaic of people who are who are just treasuring Jesus, who are just treasuring him and living in a way that shows everyone else that he's worth being treasured as well and inviting the whole body into that. Now, as we conclude today, uh, I think having worked through all that, the questions that we asked in the beginning, man, they still remain. They still remain. Those questions, man, what's stopping you from living your life? for others. 
What's stopping you from risking aspects of your own life for the gospel? And guys, I'm, I'm not saying that what you're going to do is, is zip line for the glory of Jesus, because that's scary to me. That's risking my life, in my opinion, right? Bungee jumping, I'm not that guy. But what it really means, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> um, what it really means is what parts of your life are you willing to sacrifice knowing that the reward in Christ is better? We sang a song this morning that said the reward is knowing you. How many of us believe that? How many of us truly know that, man, when I sacrifice an hour and a half watching TV in the evening, that the reward of knowing that I pursued Christ, I went out and, and talked to and spent time with unbelieving friends, I even developed relationships within the community here at church, that that will be so much greater than what I lost in the time spending in front of my TV. The, the, the nap that I missed. How many of us believe that? That's the challenge. The way we answer that is actually just in the second question. Are you setting your sights on Christ? Because I'm not going to lie, if you tell me to sacrifice for a complete stranger, it gets difficult. But when you, excuse me, when you tell me that an intimate, loving, holy, glorious God has given himself for me and now invites me to know him, to be loved by him, and to use that love in order to love others, man, that becomes a little more appealing. And so for some of us in here, we, we know Jesus, we, we love Jesus. And all we're really needing to do today is to reorient our eyes toward him, our affections on him. Uh, you know, like it, when the moments when I am tempted to be a jerk to my wife, in the moments when I'm tempted to scold my children, child, when, in the moments when I, uh, it sounds so much better when you say children, uh, in the moments when I'm threatened and I feel tempted to um, be angry, condescending, or even passive-aggressive, whichever one is your, your go-to with your roommates or your parents. Man, in those moments, set your eyes on Christ. Set your eyes on him. Know that he served you, and now you can, you're freed. You're freed from the expectation of wanting someone to do for you what Christ has already done. That's what, our, that's what we're called to do. But for some of us, man, we feel far from God. We feel like he's far off, and we don't necessarily even see him. And the reality is you also, man, I encourage you to set your eyes on Christ. But the challenge for you is different. It's to see him as he actually is. It's, in, it's seeing a gracious and loving king instead of seeing an angry and demanding tyrant. Um, it's seeing a loving and welcoming father instead of seeing an angry and rejecting master. He's is a master. But he's a good master. The challenge for those of us that feel far from him is to challenge us to see him as he is. And in seeing him, allowing our heart the space to treasure him. And as we treasure him, to allow our hearts to know that he's worth choosing over everything else. And friends, in those moments, I promise you, to Paul's point in chapter 1, man, we will live a life that displays the worth and glory and preciousness of Jesus. And that's the goal. That was the goal of Epaphroditus, and that's our goal today. Okay? Love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you that you have moved on the hearts of men like Epaphroditus and Timothy. You've moved on the hearts of men like Tychicus, uh, on the hearts of women like Lydia. 
the hearts of the Philippian jailer, slave girl. All these individuals that we highlighted, in addition to the, the ones that we all know, like Paul and Peter and John. And what does that give us confidence in, Lord? It gives us confidence that you do not stop there, but your reconstruction project to quicken our hearts is one that, yes, is dependent on your spirit making us alive, but it's also one that, that desires us to see you in your beauty, to see you in your grace and your love and affection, to see you in your kindness and your grace. God, in this place today, whether we feel far from you or near to you, and let us see that beauty. Let us see you as you are. And let that capture our hearts in a way that helps us respond by knowing that, that we can live a fearless and unified life with not just believers, but even extending ourselves to love and care for those that are outside of knowing Christ, inviting them into receiving you as their, their king, as their father. When we love you, we thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.